Well, this little bit was ahead of its time. Today I'm talking about a very specific scene that I love from 10 Cloverfield Lane. This is Scout Stuff Indulgent with the podcast. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am talking about one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite uh, sci-fi thrillers within recent memory, which is 10 Cloverfield Lane. And I rewatched it recently with Sharon, and we came across, um, well, I came across a scene that I didn't really remember very, very well before, and it stood out so much this time through, which is one of my favorite things about rewatching movies is what stands out. Anyway, this scene is great. It's incredibly well written, and from Dan Trachtenberg, I expect nothing less. So without further ado, let's get started. 10 Cloverfield Lane remains one of the more pleasant surprises in recent movie-making memory. Almost a decade removed from the found footage film bearing the same name, here came a pared-down survival thriller that managed more atmosphere, scares, and tension in 100 minutes than its predecessor did with about half the budget. And it's a movie that essentially springboarded a bunch of talent into greater things that included director Dan Trachtenberg, who made 2022's Prey, and the script was co-written by now Oscar-winning director Damien Giselle. There's a lot to like, whether it's the film's great use of setup and payoff, Trachtenberg's mastery of filmmaking language, and the great performances from all three members of the main cast. There's also great details added to these characters, both in performance and on the page, that reveals far more about their inner workings than they're able to say out loud. Case in point, this round of charades, or something similar, during game night. So things have gotten tense in the bunker as of late. And not just because the man running the bunker, John Goodman's Howard, is a conspiracy theorist hothead, but also because Michelle discovered that Howard likely kidnapped and eventually killed a young girl years prior. Now Michelle and her new friend Emmett have been working out of Howard's sight to craft hazmat suits and to plan a way to gain control and get out before they meet the same fate. But first, game night. To maintain appearances, Michelle and Emmett are portraying business as usual by playing a round of charades, or something comparable, and it's Howard's turn to guess. Emmett grabs the card and leads Howard to the first word with ease, little. But the second word trips Howard up. Emmett gives Howard the hint that this is what Michelle is. Howard says, girl. And no matter how, and no matter how hard Emmett tries to lead him, i.e. no, Michelle is a grown version of that, Howard cannot and will not say the word woman. He says, girl, uh, a princess, a uh, girl, girl, uh, uh, which are all obviously wrong at this point and ends the round by saying the little princess. Emmett then says the answer was Little Women. While Howard takes this failure more or less in stride, Michelle and Emmett are understandably disturbed. So why do I love it? This is admittedly just one part of the larger scene that gets more explosive as Emmett fails to guess Santa Claus when the clue is something akin to someone who's always watching you. But I think it's a much more revealing moment than the tension of the second round mostly because of what it tells us about Howard and his state of mind. Up to this point, the movie has never let us feel comfortable around Howard. He's too combative, too authoritarian, and too bad at human interaction to allow for that. He is, in every sense of the word, a crazed conspiracy theorist obsessed with control. 
And we hear that in how he talks about his daughter and how she was turned against him by her mother and how he constantly talks about gratitude that he's owed and any perspective that isn't his own. And we now know that he likely kidnapped a young woman years ago and probably killed her. But why would he do that? Just because he's unstable? That's not enough of an answer, but this scene gives one. He wants a replacement for his daughter that he can control. And he clearly views Michelle as that replacement. Hence why he's dressed her in his daughter's clothes, insisted that Emmett not touch her, and in this case cannot imagine her as a grown woman. It would shatter the illusion in his mind. She can only be a girl, his girl, his daughter. She is not a woman. Because women, women can make decisions for themselves, like leaving. Because Howard also wants to control her in a way he wasn't able to control his daughter. One of the things you will see and hear in what I'll dub Feminism 101 circles is how language is used to describe women that often patronizes or disempowers them. For instance, how a 30-something-year-old men will refer to women their age as girls or a woman they don't know as baby. In more extreme examples, women and girls are often flip-flop depending on how seriously someone wants to take the person involved. If a 21-year-old advocates for political action, she's a girl and shouldn't be taken seriously. And in a grosser example, underage victims of sex crimes are referred to as women, like 16-year-old women, even by press. Howard's word choice and inability to say woman tells us everything about how he views Michelle and what he wants. He doesn't want a peer. He wants a girl. He wants someone who has to listen to him. He wants the dutiful daughter he no longer has, who probably bucked against him once his authoritarian streak reared its ugly head. He wants Michelle to be his daughter, to be a girl. And for a woman like Michelle, that has to be a chillingly familiar feeling and scary as hell. This has been Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Self-Indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.